and my pleasure uh, to introduce Harold. You know, I have his official bio here. I don't know how to call you, whether I call you a nutrition economist, economical nutritionist, but you're really one of the unique sort of, uh, researchers who have been spearheading the, uh, the work over the last 20 years around the intersection between nutrition, economics, food policy. Um, your background in, um, in economics at Harvard with your PhD, your master's in nutrition at Cornell, really sort of, it doesn't say enough really to, 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 to just make justice of your, your fantastic uh, work that you've been doing in, in, this, uh, in this topic. But really, let me uh, give you the floor. Welcome. There's an awful lot of international experience on nutrition here. But I dare say that very few people, if any, have ever seen a case of scurvy. Yet at one point, tens of thousands of people died every year due to scurvy. And then the first randomized controlled trial ever done compared five different regimens plus a control group and found that everybody died except for those people who had lemons. And it took 50 years from that experiment until it became policy. Go 100 years further into Vienna in the middle of the 19th century. Dr. Simmelweis worked in a clinic where 10% of women who had a live birth, a safe birth, died of fever within a few days. He said, let's wash our, hair and wash our hands with chlorine. Brought it down to 1%. Shifted to another clinic brought it down to even less than 1%. He lost his job, and the practice was discontinued. Now you say, what does this have to do with international nutrition? I say there's a generic issue that we should be considering. The role of research is to persuade. And what went wrong? Why was this evidence not persuasive? OK, there's two reasons to consider. One is you are more persuasive with your evidence if you can show a mechanism. Lind had no concept. For almost two centuries, there was no concept of a vitamin. Simmelweis predated the germ theory by a few decades. So they didn't have the theory to support the evidence they were presenting. That was a limitation that they couldn't address. But there's a second limitation. The people who heard the information failed to balance what is the cost. We have imperfect information. If we act on the imperfect information, there's some costs. But if we don't act on the information we have, there's also costs. And people often don't, don't look at it both. Our T statistics don't answer that question. It's a loss function. I, I can understand. I'll give. I'll give uh, the British Navy a pass. Lemons were expensive when you're fighting Spain, so hard to get. But I can't picture what the doctors in the Viennese hospital were thinking when they said, well, if this Simmelweis guy is correct, we save a mother and her infant. But if he's wrong, I spent 10 whole minutes washing my hands. 
What kind of loss function? What kind of balance is that? But that's how policy is made. There's a whole literature on what does information do to decision making under rational decision making. There's a more fascinating literature, which I cannot get into, on why it's not rational. Um, but that's it. it goes to the question, persuading with the information we have. And we have been trying as a, as a profession to persuade economists or policymakers that nutrition is not just the compensation you give to the poor. It is an economic investment. 1972, USAID and others sponsored a workshop at, at MIT, which put all the evidence together. That evidence comes to roughly the same conclusion you're going to come to now with putting that new evidence. Robert Fogel got a Nobel Prize for his analysis of the economic growth of Europe, how much of it was due to better nutrition. And Fogel and a group of other uh, Nobel laureates were the judge of the three different Copenhagen consensuses. What these consensuses did, they had experts in different fields discuss, show the evidence on the economic return in their field. Education, trade policy, HIV AIDS prevention, uh, roads, construction, nutrition was one of them. In these three separate Copenhagen consensus, four years apart, each time these Nobel laureates, and they know their numbers, ranked nutrition as amongst the most productive investments, not an issue of equity, which is also there, they didn't even look at that, amongst the most productive investments. Yet when that evidence is, is presented to World Bank directors or finance ministers, they still many times say, mm, I'm not so sure I want to wash my hands. It's going to take some time. Uh, it still doesn't always convince. So what I want to be doing is going over different aspects of the underlying mechanism towards why nutrition is a productive investment. But I don't want to do it just from advocacy. I want to do it from the perspective of can we design better programs? Can we prioritize better? So we have plausible tracks. It's, we, we can show that. There are many scientifically designed control trials that show what nutrition interventions work to either save lives, to improve the growth of the child, or improve their cognitive development. There's, there's plenty of them. They can be done. So we know that this two-year-old, this three-year-old benefited from this intervention. But then we have to say, okay, they, they're, they're, they're taller, they're smarter, whatever. That means they're going to get a little more school. And then we're going to say, and if they get a little more school, they're going to have a better job. They're going to be more productive. The trouble was we seldom follow these same individuals. We don't follow them over. And if we do, as has been done in one or two rare cases, which we talk about a lot and I'll mention at least refer to, we can say, well, yes, but conditions have changed. That, that was run in Guatemala in the 30 years ago, 40 years ago. The conditions have changed. Does it still apply? Or that was only two villages. Does it still apply? So we do have a problem to look at these productivities. We don't have the ironclad evidence we, we want. We have causal chains. 
So how do we make these arguments? I'll give an example that, that has uh, been uh, done in recent years. John Hodenut led a team uh, looking at the global returns to nutrition. What he did is he took a model from the 2013 Lancet. What would happen if we took 10 promising nutrition interventions, of which there is plenty of data, and we applied it to, to every country to reduce stunting? Using that, and that would not reduce stunting 100 percent, it would reduce stunting about 30 percent. What would that do to earnings? Using data from Guatemala, which was a long-term trial, as the, as the benchmark. If stunting goes down by so much, we expect earnings to go up by so much. Applied it to every country that they had data for. It got benefit cost ratios of 34 to one for India. That's the highest. We only need a benefit cost ratio of one or a little above one to argue that this is productive. 34 to one is, is, is extraordinary. Now, one of the features of this, which is very important, the ratios were higher for countries that were modernizing. It's not as if nutrition gives you high returns when you're an agrarian economy only. Anywhere where skills are important, nutrition gives you high returns. And these results were not sensitive. Instead of using the Guatemala parameters, I redid it with parameters from a, a study of Zimbabwe uh, children who were drought stricken and where they were 20 years later. And then how much more schooling they had and how much we expect from additional schooling. And then to be on the safe side, I said, let's cut that number in half. Still gave you benefit cost ratios double digit. Used other data from another study which looked upon the association of GNP and average height use that parameter, same results, huge benefit cost ratios because lifetime earnings are affected. How they're affected then becomes the question we want to know more about. That is driven in much of the studies by the association of stunting and wages. And that is, uh, that is curious. Where and how to that association go. And this data comes from everywhere, not just the low-income countries, the agrarian, partially agrarian, no longer actually, India, Pakistan, Philippines, for example, Brazil, US, Norway, taller people earn more. Now, why is that? There's a lot of different reasons. Part of it has to do with height and status. Um, but part of it has to do, in particularly in low-income countries, the relationship on height and schooling. That from the Guatemala study, which is probably one of the firmest pieces of evidence we have, that's what the uh, impact of a randomized trial in Guatemala came through schooling. Um, and there are dozens of studies. You, you go on Google Scholar and uh, you'll find dozens of studies that look upon a nutritional shock affecting schooling. Uh, it can be a form of a proxy. These two children are the same age, low-Asian children. It's more likely that this young lady here is going to stay off of school a year before her friend goes to school. That type, whether it's the principal who makes that decision 
or the householder makes that decision, there's a lot of evidence that that stunted child will have enter school uh, at a different rate, maybe have fewer years of schooling, or even if she has the same amount of schooling, she'll leave school a little older than the other one, enter the labor force later. So whatever reason, that type of relationship has been well documented. But there's another type of stunting, and this is status of a way, that is also documented, because there's a, it's clear that there's a status in confidence. And confidence does affect school kids, uh, never mind people in the labor force. So that is another pathway that's probably direct from, from status. But it's still uh, the minority uh, of the pathway. The pathway from nutrition to earnings is mostly through skills. Particularly now where we have growing and um, favorable trends in universal primary at least, and in many cases now secondary school. So you're not going to get more children in school when it's already 100%, but you could get them to learn more in school if they're better nourished. So then is the question, what is the relationship between nutrition and learning, skills development, all types of skills, both, both cognitive skills and social-emotional skills. And there's a lot of evidence that it's associated. We have to, unfortunately, drill in on how strong ca the causality is between the nutrition interventions. And I want to get into the, a bit of a controversy how much is stunting causal on skills? But, and this is a point that colleague Jeff Leroy, who unfortunately can't make it here, has been stressing. Because the causality between stunting and skills is not strong and is not the answer to what nutrition can do for development. There's a lot more. Stunting is not stature. Stunting is one cutoff point. Stature is a distribution over an entire, entire range of height. But even more so, stature is not nutrition. We tend, unfortunately, because of the Millennium De Development Goals and the Sustainable Development Goals, of focusing a bit too much on stature. But nutrition is much broader than that. Case in point. Every nutritionist is or should be concerned about exclusive breastfeeding in the first six months of life. If there's any one recommendation we'll, we all agree on, that is probably it. It has almost no impact on stature. But we want it. We want it because it reduces morbidity, often reduces mortality, particularly where water sources are questionable. We want it because it affects IQ. Meta-analysis in The Lancet says that um, on average, uh, overall, 2.6 IQ points are lost in low and middle income countries because of poor breastfeeding practices. Now, that seems like a very small number. However, when you figure how many people it involves, 
they calculated in one year that's $300 billion lost of productivity in a single year because of breastfeeding practices which are suboptimal. Again, important, but nothing to do with stature. Going further on that same theme, one of the most common, and we've had knowledge on how to do this now for, for a generation or more, iodine fortification. The physiology is known. There's no, there's no, it don't have the same problem that, uh, that poor James Lind had. We know the physiology of iodine and hormone production in, pre in pregnant women. We have epidemiology that has shown that iodine deficiency is strongly associated with low IQ. And I'm not talking about 2.6 points, I'm talking about 15 points. Um, and it has a role in neonatal mortality. It's also very inexpensive. Come up with benefit cost ratios that are clearly in double digits. A very important, a very easy nutrition intervention. Again, stature is not the outcome measure we want. We want IQ, we want um, neonatal survival. Going one step further, and it links because iodine fortification can be linked with iron fortification. It is, in some cases, the trials are still out there trying to get it to scale. There are many good reasons to provide iron and folate to pregnant women. Stunting is not the leading reason. Again, that's not why we want to do it. We know it has important implications for the mother and for the child, neonatal child. But again, it's not because it's going to make the child taller. Um, now, unfortunately, in this case, the role of iron in cognitive skills, at least early iron, iron either uh, prenatal or first few years of life, the results there are mixed. I'd love to find out more about it. Right now, it's, it's, the jury's still out. But there's still high economic returns to iron fortification and supplementation depending on the environment because an adolescent or an adult needs iron and a school-age child who, has, who is iron deficient does not do as well. Even small um, deficiencies in iron, you don't have to be anemic, studies have been shown with biofortification, increased school performance, worker performance increased with iron. So again, high economic rates of return from a nutrition intervention, but not from stunting per se. Okay, so the overall pathway that's used in advocacy and the role of nutrition have, have, have many components. Uh, reducing mortality, I'll get into that. I think it's a very important, but it's not part of the economic argument in, in my view, and I'll explain that why. Cost of, uh, reducing cost of, of neonates and, and infant uh, health care, again, there's evidence pretty strong. Reducing the cost of obesity and chronic disease. This is something which is now greater attention because we realize nutrition is not just stunting. Nutrition is not just being strong. Nutrition is overnutrition and the risks of cardiovascular disease and diabetes later on. Unfortunately, one has to find a, a middle path in, 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 your, in your targets and what you're tr trying to do 
but that is where nutrition, again, can have economic returns. I put half a check here because I think the data there, and I'll go over that very briefly, um, is still um, weaker than the other data. Productivity by increasing strength. I think the data there is strong, but because there's fewer and fewer cases where brawn is an economic driver that is declining as an overall role. And then productivity by increasing ability. I've already mentioned a few things uh, regarding uh, breastfeeding and, and, and iodine. I'll go back and that's what I'm going to stress that. That's what I'm going to put most of the remaining uh, talk about. I'm going to, I don't want to talk about the savings in, in, in child health. They're real. Turns out to be they're modest than the overall compared to the productivity over a lifetime that you can get by more skills. They're there, but as I said, they're, they're uh, second order compared to others. Uh, I'll talk a bit about the chronic disease because it's an emerging question. But first, I want to talk about mortality reduction and where it fits into the economic uh, discussions. And my view is it has a very different role in economic discussions. And that's because we can't really assign, we should not try to assign the value of a life saved. There are many studies that have done so, and they use at least three different methodologies. One is to say, well, if that child had lived, their lifetime earnings would have been such and such. Doesn't account the lifetime investments that are going to be made in that child, which should be net out, but there's another problem that I'll get to in a second. Another approach which is used, used in the insurance industry, if somebody dies in a plane crash, you use the, the um, statistical value of a life. Basically, one way of calculating this is done, a lumberjack has a greater risk of dying than somebody of equal strong, equal education working somewhere else, and then they use that to decide how much they value their own probability of dying, and they use that for calculations. It's used. Third way is the revealed prayer of governments. Governments spend so much to save lives from malaria or save lives to tuberculosis. That's how much the government values saving lives. We have those data. Problem is that these three calculations can differ by three orders of magnitude. One says it's worth $1,000, one says it's worth a million dollars. Pick your number, you can, you can drive any results. You can cherry pick any conclusion you want by the different numbers. But there's a worse problem. It says that a life of a Swede is worth a thousand times more than a life of a Burkina Bay because it's based on lifetime earnings. That somehow does not fit in, in, in good economic calculations. So as far as making economic calculations, let's take this out. Let's say there's a human rights value to try to save an infant's life. Let's not try to put a dollar value on it doesn't mean we can't use economics. We can use economics but cost effectiveness. What is the cheapest way to achieve this goal? We can say, for example, that community-based management of acute malnutrition will save a life at one-fourth the cost of a clinic-based management of acute malnutrition, depending on various things and infection rates and so forth. You know, I'm taking just an average. Or we can say that management of acute malnutrition costs one-fourth 
of what the cost of saving a life by supplementing uh, pregnant women. You can make those calculations and you can make, make program. And I think that using this type of information for program design is important. It's not the same advocacy numbers, but it's for, uh, for program design. And I think one thing about it is the timing. These interventions are front-loaded. 40% of all mortality is in the first three weeks. 40% of all child mortality is in the first three weeks of child's life. In the next 11 months, another 30%. So almost all mortality is, is front-loaded in the child's risk of mortality in child's life. So what you get here is this is the period where we could be focusing, the first year of life. This is, this is a, a calculation of low weight for height, which is the highest risk of mortality of any nutrition indicator, low weight for height, wasting. Um, that's where the risk is in terms, I have never seen a study and I've looked to say whether the odds ratio of death is any different in the second year of life than the first year of life. I don't think that data is out there, but the number of deaths are higher in the first year of life, a reason for front-loading this particular uh, intervention. Uh, but as I said, it's not the type of intervention we're looking at when we say that investing in nutrition is an economic rates of return. I want to look a bit, again, mention a bit about preventing chronic disease. And here's a case where, where new information, new theory does make the results more uh, communicable. David Barker showed a link between birth weights and adult health 30 years ago. Very curious, got a lot of, lot of discussion and a lot of pushback because, well, how does that happen? How does what happened when you were prenatal affect where you are now that you're 40 or 50? And then in the last few decades, epigenetics has shown the mechanism. What happens in utero decides which genes that are already there are methylated, which ones are activated, which ones aren't. And that will affect the lifetime health of the individual. But from an economic question, that's interesting but it makes little difference from investment priorities. We already have reasons to invest in prenatal nutrition. We don't need this. It adds another 6% to the total returns from investing in prenatal nutrition, but there are many other reasons already. So although it's interesting, but the same question that comes up, how about investing because we're concerned with stunting, we're concerned with the relationship, by the way, Diabetes, a risk factor of diabetes is underweight, pre low birth weight, as well as later on in your life, overweight. So you, 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 you've got risk factors from two ends. Unfortunately, because diabetes happens when you're 30 or 40, there's great cost to the society. But investments, when you're five or six, because there are some investments now to get the children to be uh, 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 change their diet habits when they're five or six. From the economic standpoint, those gains that you're going to, the money you're going to save 30, 40 years in the future are discounted so that these at this point don't show 
uh, favorable rates of return. Different studies now on taxation, uh, which have a very different uh, distribution as opposed to investment in getting children to exercise more, those rates of return uh, are looking uh, uh, to more favorable from the standpoint of investment. But let's go to cognition because that's, that's the core of the rates of return from nutrition. There's little dispute that um, better skills drives economic growth. Um, and there's a number of reviews. The three most recent ones I've seen all show that stature and cognitive development are associated. Now, we'll go to association and causality, not the same thing. We all hopefully know that. But even more so, these studies show that the association is weak. And it's strongest the very young, where you can break it down as a child reaches two, that association is not as strong when a child reaches one. When a child reaches five, that association is weaker still. That does mean that it's hard to say that nutrition would be stature, because what I'm talking about here, stunting most of these studies, actually not stature. Most of these studies would show this association. If it's a weak association, it's hardly a guide for an investment priority. Because what you really want to know is how to increase cognitive, can you do it without increasing stunting? Is that maybe the better way to do it? And you look at these evidence, again, they look at uh, one study, looked at 12 studies which looked at repeated observation of the child's height, so how much they've grown in a period and how much their cognitive development had. And um, most of the association was in the first year or two of life, and, and then it weakened. Another study which looked at, at, at again, growth and, and cognitive found, yes, yes, it's there. Four percent of cognitive development can be explained, which means do we want to focus on that four percent? Do we want to find out how to get that 96 percent? I, uh, I think the priorities are there. So. Okay, you know, most studies, most presentations, almost everyone I do has in the final slide more research is needed. I'm not going to give you a final thought. I'll give it to you now, okay? Same, same conclusion, just a different time. Okay, so let's, let's figure what are the implications of this weak correlation? Um, if it's not causal, then we clearly still may find common determinants so that we work on stunting and cognitive development by working on the common determinant. That, and then we can use stunting as an indicator of success because two things are happening. That is possible and it's clearly there, there's a fair amount of evidence on that as an indicator of early progress and I, and I, and I would like to stress early. And we have common determinants, wealth is one, education is one. Other ways of changing caregiving particularly early on, are probably common determinants. And another one that is hard to measure, but may be at the core of some of these common determinants, is addressing maternal depression. There are, there's some evidence now and some evidence that we know how to do it. How do we address it, not just observe it? Um, and 
it's clear that if we have success, we will affect stunting, stature, we will affect cognitive development, and we will improve the life of the woman who's often just treated as a caregiver rather than an individual in herself, which is really part of the goal. Okay, now there's a lot of concern about, well, do we focus on the thousand days? A thousand days is from conception to the child's second birth. It's where nutrition has for the last decade or, or more tried to put all, most emphasis. And then people say, well, actually there's catch-up growth. People do change in their uh, uh, stunting characteristics. Uh, they catch up, some of them. This has been done, let's say, there's a young life study that tr tracked people from year one to year eight, or some of them from year uh, 12 to 20. Um, in, in four countries, and they find, yes, that some stunted children end up not being stunted, they close the gap, and those that close the gap seem to also close the cognitive gap. Okay, that's in good news, that's encouraging. But there's few studies, none to my knowledge actually, that show, well one or two actually, that show we know how to do it. It happens, but can we make it happen is a different question. Um, so. This is, this is particularly after the age two, do we, do we know what can be done? Um, so there's another thing to consider. There, if we want to improve cognitive skills, studies have shown that nutrition interventions, specific nutrition interventions, do change cognitive skills. Specific cognitive skills design stimulations change cognitive skills four times, as the effect size is four times as large. So again, now what we don't know are the relative costs, and unfortunately we don't know the time frame because some of these projects seem to fade out if you don't have a follow-up project. But again, if we're looking at, if we decide that the time the child's two, from now we should be focusing on cognitive, then probably the intervention that has four times as big impact is the one we should be going for. Plus, one other thing to consider of risks. Trying to make a stunted child less stunted runs the risk of putting weight on a stunted frame and leading to obesity. As far as I know, there are no downside risks to trying to cognitively stimulate a child. So. Again, from program design, let's, let's, let's worry about our risks, too. Just to show you something on life cycle, this is where our nutrition inventions tend to be because the growth velocity is greater. There are some concerns. These are periods of higher growth velocity, and we would like to get programs for adolescents' health. But look at the velocity of cognitive development over the period five years to 20 years. And the last frame here, the change in brain size, which parts of the brain are growing, executive function, the ability to, to, to make decisions. So again, this says something about our life cycle timing. And if we're looking at changing height, front load it, okay, and then Let's go where the velocity of change is greater for other programs. Now, one way we're looking at synergy. Can we have a nutrition program and a cognitive development program that work together and get 
better results? Well, unfortunately, the evidence doesn't yet show that. That is, we can have these programs together, we can get impacts, but we don't get synergistic impacts. That is, we can get the sum of the same, but we don't get greater than the, the sum. So that there's one or two trials, one in Colombia that, 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 that may show a certain degree of synergism. But let's look at it from the other way. Working these two together doesn't seem to harm either. So that running programs simultaneously, if they don't harm things, they may save on the cost of delivery, on the management costs, and thereby give you greater returns because it's not just what your outcomes are, but it's your outcomes per investment. So there's possibility of having streamlined delivery as long as running two programs does not overload your system, which unfortunately in one or two cases it does. Okay, just uh, just the basic uh, caveat. We, we, we look at nutrition as the outcome and we say, well, we're going to assume that if nutrition is improving, we're going to get cognitive improvement. And we do that all the time. And I say there's a real risk of teaching to the exam. Is any administrator who is being told we want to reduce stunting by such and such, they're going to target that intervention because that's how they're being assessed. So there's the risk of teaching to ad ad advance. We don't have the same tools. It's much easier to measure stunting. We don't have the tools to measure cognitive development, at least as simple as we'd like. I believe that there are, there's projects trying to get better tools to measure cognitive. And if the same programs are starting to measure cognitive as well as stunting, we'll have a better idea of how to prioritize. We'll have a better idea of what we're getting for our investments. But we don't yet have it. I've been talking about growth. I just want to take the next couple of minutes, my last couple of minutes, to talk about equity. Slightly different. Because on equity, you may want to give your attention to where the rates of return are lower, but in fact you're reaching somebody who is further down the economic ladder. And we have, we have a whole economic theory of it um, on path dependency would say, look, if somebody has better skills or better nutrition when they enter preschool, they will do better in preschool because they have a better base. That's called the type of path dependency. And that's important because it also shows a short-term shock. Child who happens to be a year and a half old when there's a drought, they will bear that consequence of that drought the rest of their life just because the path dependency of that short-term shock. There's something related to that, that if the child has more skills entering preschool, the rates of return from our investment will be higher in putting our, our uh, program towards them. That's the economic efficiency. Higher rates of return, that's what economics tells you. On the other hand, equity says, when we're not looking at the rate of return, we're looking at trying to close the gap. That's a different prioritization, or it may be. Now, if in fact going to preschool closes the gap rather than widens the gap, then we don't have a trade-off between efficiency and equity, and that's still 
not many cases we don't have the fine-tuning on what, what cognitive development is to know that. Just want to just illustrate this to one point. This is the gap between the poor and the rich in Bogota on um, one, one outcome, on cognitive outcome. If you add in their mother's education, that closes the gap. If you add in their height, it makes no difference. It does not mediate that gap. If you add in the family care, the amount of time parents spend with their child, it cuts the gap again in half. This goes again to the issue, the top of the equity gap. It's not about just height, it's about caregiving, and I think the equity gap is at least as important as the efficiency gap. Okay, um, but basically saying the same issue, I just want to bring over one other thing about uh, Jamaica gives a good example. They showed, there was a study showed stunted children, if they give cognitive inputs, if expensive and whether they can replicate it at scale, another story, but those stunted children who got cognitive impact, cognitive stimulation, ended up earning the same amount of money as those who were not stunted. 25% difference between those who were stunted and got nothing. This was followed 30 years, uh, again, uh, used uh, Heckman, Nobel laureate, a uh, number of economists as well, a couple of psychologists. So what we want to do is to use our scarce resources, pivot towards cognitive development. So to conclude, it's pretty clear nutrition interventions save lives. And that is a front-loaded, I don't think we should be talking about the 1,000 days, I think we should talk about the 1,200 days because it should start pre preconception. But somewhere in that later half of that 1,000 days, and I can't tell you, I don't think the data is clear enough to say, we should be pivoting towards cognitive development and de-emphasizing statement. Basically, if you haven't got the message on diet diversity by the time the child's 18 months old, maybe, maybe you ought to try a new message. Um, and nutrition programs do not automatically give you skills. They may give you skills. One way of looking at it, I can scratch my ear like this, or I can scratch it like this. Which way is the more efficient way? If we want to get cognitive skills, maybe let's try to do it directly, because they don't move ex I I lockstep. And when we're trying to do that, finally, let's consider the equity issue. No matter what we do, no matter any of our optimistic dreams of what we're going to do in the next 10, 15 years on the sustainable development growth, there will be some malnourished children. We will fail some cases. If we are failing those cases, let us find the way to have them catch up in their cognitive skills so they can still have the skills to enter the labor market and contribute to economic development. Thank you.